Chapter Two of The Great Shadow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Great Shadow by Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Two. Cousin Edie of Eyemouth. Some years before, when I was still but a lad, there had come over to us upon a five weeks' visit the only daughter of my father's brother. Willie Calder had settled at Eyemouth as a maker of fishing nets, and he had made more out of twine than ever we were like to do out of the wind bushes and sand links of West Inch. So his daughter, Edie Calder, came over with a bra red frock and a five shilling bonnet and a kist full of things that brought my dear mother's eyes out like a parton's. It was wonderful to see her so free with money and she but a slip of a girl, paying the carrier man all that he asked and a whole tuppence over, to which he had no claim. She made no more of drinking ginger beer than we did of water, and she would have her sugar in her tea and butter with her bread just as if she had been English. I took no great stock of girls at that time, for it was hard for me to see what they had been made for. There were none of us at Bert Whistles that thought very much of them, but the smallest laddies seemed to have the most sense, for after they began to grow bigger, they were not so sure about it. We little ones were all of one mind that a creature that couldn't fight and was eye carrying tails, and couldn't so much as shy a stone without flapping its arm like a rag in the wind, was no use for anything. And then the airs that they would put on, as if they were mother and father rolled into one, forever breaking into a game with, Jimmy, your toes come through your boot, or go home, you dirty boy, and clean yourself, until the very sight of them was weariness. So when this one came to the steading at West Inch, I was not best pleased to see her. I was twelve at the time, it was in the holidays, and she eleven, a thin, tallish girl with black eyes and the queerest ways. She was forever staring out in front of her with her lips parted as if she saw something wonderful. But when I came behind her and looked the same way, I could see nothing but the sheep's trough or the midden or father's breeches hanging on a clothesline. And then if she saw a lump of heather or bracken or any common stuff of that sort, she would mope over it as if it had struck her sick, and cry, How sweet! How perfect! Just as though it had been a painted picture. She didn't like games, but I used to make her play tig and such like, but it was no fun, for I could always catch her in three jumps, and she could never catch me, though she would come with as much rustle and flutter as ten boys would make. When I used to tell her that she was good for nothing, and that her father was a fool to bring her up like that, she would begin to cry and say that I was a rude boy, and that she would go home that very night and never forgive me as long as she lived. But in five minutes she had forgot all about it. What was strange was that she liked me a deal better than I did her, and she would never leave me alone, but she was always watching me and running after me, and then saying, Oh, here you are, as if it were a surprise. But soon I found that there was good in her, too. She used sometimes to give me pennies, so that once I had four in my pocket all at the same time. But the best part of her was the stories that she could tell. She was sore frightened of frogs, so I would bring one to her and tell her that I would put it down her neck unless she told a story. That always helped her to begin, but when once she was started it was wonderful how she would carry on, and the things that had happened to her, 
They were enough to take your breath away. There was a Barbary rover that had been at Eyemouth, and he was coming back in five years in a ship full of gold to make her his wife. And then there was a wandering knight who had been there also, and he had given her a ring which he said he would redeem when the time came. She showed me the ring, which was very like the ones upon my bed-curtain, but she said that this one was virgin gold. I asked her what the knight would do if he met the Barbary rover, and she told me that he would sweep his head from his shoulders. What they could all see in her was more than I could think." and then she told me that she had been followed on her way to West Inch by a disguised prince. I asked her how she knew it was a prince, and she said by his disguise. Another day she said that her father was preparing a riddle, and that when it was ready it would be put in the papers, and anyone who guessed it would have half his fortune and his daughter. I said that I was good at riddles, and that she must send it to me when it was ready. She said it would be in the Barrack Gazette, and wanted to know what I would do with her when I won her. I said I would sell her by public roop for what she would fetch, but she would tell no more stories that evening, for she was very tetchy about some things. Jim Horscroft was away when Cousin Edie was with us, but he came back the very week she went, and I mind how surprised I was that he should ask any questions or take any interest in a mere lassie. He asked me if she were pretty, and when I said I hadn't noticed, he laughed and called me a mole, and said my eyes would be opened some day. But very soon he came to be interested in something else, and I never gave Edie another thought until one day she just took my life in her hands, and twisted it as I could twist this quill. That was in 1813, after I had left school, when I was already eighteen years of age, with a good forty hairs on my upper lip, and every hope of more. I had changed since I left school, and was not so keen on games as I had been, but found myself instead lying about on the sunny side of the braes, with my own lips parted and my eyes staring, just the same as Cousin Edie's used to do. It had satisfied me and filled my whole life that I could run faster and jump higher than my neighbor, but now all that seemed such a little thing, and I yearned and yearned and looked up at the big arching sky and down at the flat blue sea and felt that there was something wanting but could never lay my tongue to what that something was. And I became quick of temper, too, for my nerves seemed all of a fret, and when my mother would ask me what ailed me, or my father would speak of my turning my hand to work, I would break into such sharp, bitter answers as I have often grieved over since. Ah, a man may have more than one wife, and more than one child, and more than one friend, but he can never have but the one mother, so let him cherish her while he may. One day, when I came in from the sheep, there was my father sitting with a letter in his hands, which was a very rare thing with us, except when the factor wrote for the rent. Then as I came nearer to him I saw that he was crying, and I stood staring, for I had always thought that it was not a thing that a man could do. I can see him now, for he had so deep a crease across his brown cheek that no tear could pass it, but must trickle away sideways and so down to his ear, hopping off on to the sheet of paper. 
My mother sat beside him and stroked his hands like she did the cat's back when she would soothe it. "'Aye, Jeanie,' said he, "'poor Willie's gone. It's from the lawyer, and it was sudden, or they'd ha' sent word of it. Carbuncle,' he says, and a flush o' blood to the head. "'Ah, well, his trouble's over,' said my mother. My father rubbed his ears with the tablecloth. "'He's left all his savings to his lassie,' said he, "'and by gum if she's not changed from what she promised to be, "'she'll soon gar them flee. "'You mind what she said of weak tea under this very roof, "'and it at seven shillings the pound.' "'My mother shook her head and looked up at the flitches of bacon "'that hung from the ceiling. "'He doesn't say how much, but she'll have enough and to spare,' he says." and she's to come and bide with us, for that was his last wish. "'To pay for her keep,' cried my mother sharply. I was sorry that she should have spoken of money at that moment, but then if she had not been sharp we would all have been on the roadside in a twelve-month. "'Aye, she'll pay, and she's coming this very day. Jock, lad, I'll want you to drive to Ayton and meet the evening coach. Your cousin Edie will be in it, and you can fetch her over to West Inch.' And so I started off at quarter-past five with Souter Johnny, the long-haired fifteen-year-old, and our cart with the new-painted tailboard that we only used on great days. The coach was in just as I came, and I, like a foolish country lad, taking no heed to the years that had passed, was looking about among the folk in the inn for a slip of a girl with her petticoats just under her knees and as I slouched past and craned my neck, there came a touch to my elbow, and there was a lady dressed all in black standing by the steps, and I knew that it was my cousin Edie. I knew it, I say, and yet she had not touched me. I might have passed her a score of times and never known it. My word, if Jim Horscroft had asked me then if she were pretty or no, I should have known how to answer him. She was dark, much darker than is common among our border lasses, and yet with such a faint blush of pink breaking through her dainty colour, like the deeper flush at the heart of a sulphur rose. Her lips were red and kindly and firm, and even then at the first glance I saw that light of mischief and mockery that danced away at the back of her great dark eyes. She took me then and there as though I had been her heritage, put out her hand, and plucked me. She was, as I have said, in black, dressed in what seemed to me to be a wondrous fashion, with a black veil pushed up from her brow. "'Ah, Jack,' said she, in a mincing English fashion that she had learned at the boarding-school. "'No, no, we are rather old for that. This because I, in my awkward fashion, was pushing my foolish brown face forward to kiss her, as I had done when I saw her last. Just hurry up like a good fellow and give a shilling to the conductor, who has been exceedingly civil to me during the journey. I flushed up red to the ears, for I had only a silver fourpenny piece in my pocket. Never had my lack of pence weighed so heavily upon me as just at that moment. But she read me at a glance, and there in an instant was a little moleskin purse with a silver clasp thrust into my hand. I paid the man, and would have given it back, but she still would have me keep it. "'You shall be my factor, Jack,' said she, laughing. "'Is this our carriage? How funny it looks! And where am I to sit?' "'On the sacking,' said I.' 
"'And how am I to get there? "'Put your foot on the hub,' said I. "'I'll help you.' "'I sprang up and took her two little gloved hands in my own. "'As she came over the side, her breath blew in my face, sweet and warm, "'and all that vagueness and unrest seemed in a moment "'to have been shredded away from my soul. "'I felt as if that instant had taken me out from myself "'and made me one of the race.' It took but the time of the flicking of the horse's tail, and yet something had happened, a barrier had gone down somewhere, and I was leading a wider and a wiser life. I felt it all in a flush, but shy and backward as I was, I could do nothing but flatten out the sacking for her. Her eyes were after the coach which was rattling away to Berwick, and suddenly she shook her handkerchief in the air. He took off his hat, said she. I think he must have been an officer. He was very distinguished-looking. Perhaps you noticed him, a gentleman on the outside, very handsome, with a brown overcoat? I shook my head, with all my flush of joy changed to foolish resentment. Ah, well, I shall never see him again. Here are all the green braes and the brown winding road, just the same as ever. And you, Jock, I don't see any great change in you, either. I hope your manners are better than they used to be. You won't try to put any frogs down my back, will you? I crept all over when I thought of such a thing. We'll do all we can to make you happy at West Inch, said I, playing with the whip. I'm sure it's very kind of you to take a poor lonely girl in, said she. It's very kind of you to come, cousin Edie, I stammered. You'll find it very dull, I fear. I suppose it is a little quiet, Jack, eh? "'Not many men about, as I remember it. "'There's Major Elliot up at Corrymuir. "'He comes down of an evening, "'a real brave old soldier "'who had a ball in his knee under Wellington. "'Ah, when I speak of men, Jack, "'I don't mean old folk with balls in their knees. "'I meant people of our own age "'that we could make friends of. "'By the way, that crabbed old doctor had a son, "'had he not?' "'Oh, yes, that's Jim Horscroft, my best friend.' "'Is he at home?' "'No, he'll be home soon. "'He's still at Edinburgh, studying.' "'Ah, then we'll keep each other company "'until he comes, Jack, "'and I'm very tired, "'and I wish I was at West Inch.' "'I made old suitor Johnny cover the ground "'as he has never done before or since, "'and in an hour she was seated at the supper-table "'where my mother had laid out not only butter, "'but a glass dish of gooseberry jam, "'which sparkled and looked fine in the candlelight. "'I could see that my parents were as overcome as I was "'at the difference in her, though not in the same way. "'My mother was so set back by the feather thing "'that she had round her neck "'that she called her Miss Calder instead of Edie, "'until my cousin, in her pretty flighty way, "'would lift her forefinger to her whenever she did it. After supper, when she had gone to bed, they could talk of nothing but her looks and her breeding. "'By the way, though,' says my father, "'it does not look as if she were heartbroke about my brother's death.' And then for the first time I remembered that she had never said a word about the matter since I had met her. End of chapter 2